Good evening. If you have a Bible, open it up to Philippians chapter 1. We're going to continue in the book of Philippians tonight. And I want to just reiterate one of the announcements from earlier. Waldo mentioned there will not be a 6 o'clock service next Sunday. That is because it is Super Bowl Sunday, and I want to just clarify that a little bit. We don't cancel because we think that the Super Bowl is more important than church or worship or anything like that, but we have uh, in the past, when we've had the 6 o'clock service on the same night as the Super Bowl, uh, nobody shows, So, except for me and Jamie, and so uh, we thought because that's the case, what we figured is you guys have a great opportunity to get together with some friends in your dorm, with some friends in your apartment complex, whatever, watch the game with them, hopefully have an opportunity to build some relationships that might lead to an opportunity to share the gospel, who knows. So we figured because you guys are probably going to be watching the game anyway, we'd give you an opportunity to do that. So if you are planning to be at church next week, we go ahead and come in the morning. We still will have the morning service. We're not going to get ready that far in advance. And uh so go ahead and come in the morning, and then we will pick up with the 6 o'clock service in two weeks. So, All right, Philippians chapter 1, I'm going to start in verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some, indeed, preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Would you pray with me? Father, we are grateful for the evening. And we thank you for your word. Thank you that you've not left us in the dark. and You've not left us to die in our sins. But instead you have provided for us through Jesus Christ, your son. Lord, I pray that as we study your word tonight, you would just give us understanding of it. I pray you would remove the distractions that often fill our minds at times like these. Lord, remove the distractions of the upcoming week or the week that we just finished. Let us be present in this moment. Father, I pray that in our hearts you would help us to believe. We struggle with doubts and we struggle with fears and what it will really mean if we follow you and your son wholeheartedly. And Father, I pray that you would remove those fears. And then I pray through your spirit we would trust in you. Empower us to obey. 
And we pray all of this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Well, when I was in college, as part of the college group here at Grace, the mission trip that we went on each year was to central Mexico. It was to a town called Galeana, Mexico. It was a couple hours south of Monterey. I went on this trip about three times. There were each year about 20 to 25 students. We'd go down there and we stayed in a mission in Galeana. And from there, that was our base. We would go out into various villages in the mountains surrounding the area and we would do VBS programs for the kids. We also served during the week, fixing things, building things at the mission. And uh, I loved the trips. And one of the highlights of being on the trip was the opportunity to spend time with the missionary who had founded this ministry in Galeana. His name was George Rivera. And George was a guy who he had grown up in South Calif- Southern California in LA, became a Christian when he was in high school. And uh, he felt God's call on his life to go to Mexico and share the gospel, to spend his life doing that. He didn't know a lick of the language at all, but he learned. And by the time we got there, he had been there for 40 years. And he would tell us these stories about the early years in this ministry. Uh, They didn't have a building. They didn't have really any facilities. So he would sleep out in the open air on the ground on a cot or a sleeping bag. And then in order to get up into the mountains where people were to share the gospel, back in the 1950s and 60s, George would literally get on a donkey and ride up into the mountains share the gospel, and then he'd ride back down because there were no roads that cars could get up the mountain on. And he would go up and he would share the gospel with these people and they would persecute him. They threw stones at him. They chased him out of town because their religion was a combination of Catholicism and Native American paganism. And they were hostile to the message of eternal life freely through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But he continued to preach. And by the time we got there, there were 10 or 15 churches that he had planted all around this area. Men and women who were worshiping Jesus and sharing the message of Jesus with their family and their friends, even though they were being persecuted for it. And I loved hearing his stories, and it always made me think, what motivates a guy to do that? What motivates a person to leave his home and spend his life in another culture, sleep on the ground, experience persecution, ride a donkey, which is probably painful, and do that with his life? And as you talk to him, you realized it was because he really believed, really believed that eternal life and hope was found in Jesus Christ. And so he was willing to endure suffering because of it. Sometimes talking to him felt like talking to a modern day Paul. Because when you look at the book of Philippians, when you look at Paul's writings, you see that Paul also was imprisoned repeatedly for the gospel. He experienced persecution over and over and over again. But because he believed with all his heart and his mind that Jesus really rose from the dead, that persecution really didn't seem like much to him because he had an eternal perspective that he was bringing the words of eternal life. And that was Paul's mission after he had an encounter with the risen Jesus Christ. Every time I read the New Testament, every time I interact with guys like George, it always makes me think, Why am I sometimes unwilling to endure persecution, even a little bit of hostility for the gospel of Jesus Christ? Now, the truth is, if you share the gospel in our culture, you're not going to go to jail, at least most of the time. You're probably not going to be beaten up. You're probably not going to have people stone you or throw rocks at you. 
right? But you will, in some sense, probably be persecuted because we live in a pluralistic culture where the prevailing mindset is that every religion, every belief system is equal in value. And so if you begin to proclaim the message that there is only one way to have eternal life and only one way to know God, and that's through Jesus Christ, you will experience a little bit of pushback and persecution, Usually with people's words, they'll say things that are unkind, or maybe they'll exclude you from their groups. You might even lose a job. You might even lose prestige in your community. And the question is, if you're like me, I ask myself, why does that scare me so much? Why am I afraid to experience any sort of persecution or hostility for the name of Jesus? Because the truth is that we're often willing to experience a little bit of persecution if it's something we really care about, right? For example, last year when the Aggies decided to make the move to the SEC, how many of you defended that wholeheartedly with your TSIP friends and family members? And you're out on Facebook and you're talking about it, and even though people are pushing back and saying, uh, that's dumb, don't do that, you guys are going to get creamed, right? You defended your Aggies, right, with your life because you care. So for some of you right now, it's, uh, there's a particular political candidate you care about. And so you're pushing that candidate. You're out on Facebook, wherever it is, and you you care about it. And even though people may pressure you to change your opinion, you're willing to face a little bit of persecution for that. So the question is, when it comes to sharing the message of Jesus Christ, why are we afraid? Why do we pull back? And what I see as I read the book of Philippians is Paul is writing from the perspective of someone who really believes that Jesus died and rose from the dead. And because he believes that, he believes he carries this message that will transform lives. And the suffering that he's going through when he's writing this book, he's in prison, he's in jail. The suffering that he's going through, he just sees that as something temporary and something that doesn't even compare to the eternal reward and the eternal joy that he will experience for being a part of the work of God's kingdom. And it's worth it to him if the gospel spreads further to experience this persecution. But as we look at the testimony of Paul in the scripture, what we see is a man who had an encounter with the living Jesus Christ. And it revolutionized the way that he lived and the way that he spoke and even what he was willing to endure because he sees that his imprisonment and his persecution are not defeats But instead, there are opportunities for God to work through him. And what Paul says in this passage is that he sees God working through even his suffering and persecution in a way that will expand the message of the gospel. And Paul says, I rejoice in that even as I sit in a jail cell. And so the question for you and me this morning is this, am I willing to take an eternal perspective of my life and say, even if I experience being ostracized, even if I experience being made fun of, even if I experience hostility, Am I willing to press forward with sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ and living it out in a culture that often doesn't want me to do that? And can I do that looking forward and saying, my reward is eternal. My reward is not now. And and the response of those around me doesn't dictate whether what I'm saying or doing is correct. If I believe Jesus died and rose again. What Paul says is there's all kinds of benefits in God's economy, that come to him from suffering for the sake of the gospel. We're going to look at some of those this morning as we look through Philippians chapter 1. We're going to see what suffering for the gospel accomplishes in the life of Paul and in the life of the church. First thing he says is this, suffering for the gospel spreads the gospel. Look at verses 12 through 13 again. 
I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. In other words, Paul says, my suffering has served to make the gospel known because the imperial guard, that is in Greek, the praetorian guard has come to know of my suffering. Paul is almost certainly here imprisoned in Rome. The Praetorian Guard was the emperor's special bodyguard. It was his special force that protected him. There were probably six or 7,000 of these guards, of these soldiers. And Paul says, because I'm suffering for Christ, all of them have heard about the gospel and why I'm suffering, not only them, but everybody around me. Because even as Paul is in prison, he's testifying to the reason why. And people are sharing that with others. And so it's advancing the gospel. Persecution doesn't stop the spread of the gospel. Instead, it advances it. Uh, Some of you guys, when you were kids, maybe most of you probably enjoyed picking up those little dandelions off the ground, you know, the little uh, white dandelions, and you would blow them out in the air. You'd see those little pretty seeds spread out into the air. And it's a lot of fun when you're a little kid, right? Not so much when it's your lawn, okay? The reality is that dandelions are like a robo-plant, they're almost impossible to destroy because if you mow over them, you'll spread those little seeds and you'll get a hundred more, right? Actually, I read, read this this morning. If you pull them up like you do other weeds, even a little piece of the root will re-sprout into a little pocket of dandelions. You mow over them, you pull them up, you uproot them, you can't get rid of the things. They will spread. Fortunately, they, they don't like walk around and come get you for what you're doing, right? But they are... Hard to kill. As you look at history, this is what you see with the gospel, although it's not a destructive weed, but instead it's the message of God. And because it's the message of God, nothing stops it. The reality is that there are other religions since the time of Jesus that have come and gone. Because of persecution, they've been wiped out or they've been contained to particular areas of the world that are amenable to them. Christianity continues to spread and grow. It has no cultural boundaries. Because it's the message of God. Under communism in China, the house church movement, which has consistently been persecuted, has grown, last I heard, to over 50 million people worshiping Jesus. In Cuba, under Fidel Castro, although he's persecuted the church for 50-some years, the gospel has grown. And uh, there's churches that have grown and, and tripled, quadrupled in size under Castro, even though they've had to stay underground. Persecution has the effect of advancing the gospel worldwide, not destroying it. And that's what Paul says. The more that you persecute, the more the gospel will spread. And what's happened, my imprisonment, although I'm sitting in jail, what's happened is that served to advance the gospel and everybody's hearing about it. And as a result, people are coming to know Jesus. If you want to have a life that bears fruit for the gospel, The solution is this, that you live faithfully for Jesus Christ. You proclaim the message of Jesus Christ even when you receive hostility, all right? And what Paul does is when he receives hostility, he doesn't lash back. He doesn't try to claim his rights. He doesn't try to gather people to go vote for Paul for emperor. But instead, what he does is he lovingly and graciously continues to present the gospel. And guess what? It spreads. And so, yeah, as you go home to hostile families, perhaps, or you go to a dorm context where people laugh or they mock you because of what you believe or they push back in hatred or anger, you lovingly and gently present the gospel 
and you'll see it grow. It's a great story from the 4th century A.D. In the Roman Empire, a town called Sebast, there were 40 soldiers who were accused of being Christians. They didn't want to worship the emperor. And so their punishment, what their general decided to do to put them to death, he came up with a very unusual punishment for these 40 soldiers. It was the middle of winter, very cold climate. He put them out on a pond in the freezing cold weather, made them strip naked and stand on that pond until they froze to death. But here's what he did. Right on the edge of the pond, he placed several warm baths of water. And he said to these men, anybody who will crawl off the ice and recant and renounce the name of Jesus Christ can get in one of these baths, cool down, and go on with his life. So these 40 men stood there. And uh, finally, early, early the next morning, one of the men gave up. He crawled off the ice. He got into the bath and he renounced Jesus Christ. Other 39 still stood there. They were sad. Their number had gone down from 40 to 39, but it didn't last long. There was a guard standing by the bath who saw the faithfulness of these men because they believed in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he said, I believe that too. Took off his clothes, walked out on the ice where he died with the other 39. Their willingness to suffer for the gospel advanced the cause of the gospel. And again, you're not likely to go to jail, you're not likely to be beaten, although in some countries that still happens, but you will experience hostility from a pluralistic culture, and you have an opportunity to see the gospel grow as you share it faithfully. So suffering for the gospel spreads the gospel. Secondly, suffering for the gospel encourages other believers. Look at verse 14. Most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. All right, so here's another benefit from Paul's suffering is that there are men and women who are Christians and they see Paul's suffering. And interestingly, this emboldens them. It takes away their fear. All right, now that's that's the opposite of what you'd expect, right? You'd think that if somebody does something and goes to jail, you'd go, I don't want to do that, right? Somebody goes and robs a convenience store. Most of us look at that they go, I'm probably not going to do that. That's not how I'm going to make my living one day. I don't want to go to jail. Anybody in here want to go to jail? Probably not. But this is interesting. Paul says, when I go to jail for the gospel, other people are emboldened to do exactly what I've done, which is preach the gospel, and they're not afraid. Because God works in their hearts and their lives so that they say, I want to be a part of what God is doing, even if it brings me persecution. It emboldens them to share Jesus. Several years ago, I went to a country in a communist sort of dictator context and had the opportunity to meet with a house church leader, an underground house church leader. And I remember uh, it was kind of, I mean, it really was kind of this cloak and dagger situation because of his somewhat nervousness about meeting with Americans and connecting with us and perhaps being arrested. We went to a hotel, we met in this room, and he had to come in and meet us a little bit later. He came in by himself, walked in the room, and he's looking around. I thought, I feel like I'm on an episode of 24 or something, right? Like Pastor Jack Bauer, right? <laughs> Only difference is I, I don't know any real hand-to-hand combat moves or any of the cool stuff. So if something actually went down, we'd all be in trouble, right? But I remember this guy coming in and and then he was talking to us about how he had suffered for the gospel. He'd gone to jail 
He'd had his finances seized. Shortly after we met with him, the government actually leveled the office building where he worked to prepare to lead his church. And I remember thinking, you know, I, I don't have to endure any of that. And yet somehow I was emboldened and strengthened to want to share the gospel without fear. Because I knew that the message is true. And that's what's going on in Paul's situation. As people look around and they say, he's persecuted for the gospel. We need to pick up the baton because he can't be out and preach right now. And it emboldens them. How many of you guys really loved junior high dances? Anybody? Anybody? Okay. Yeah, okay. A few of you guys. A couple. All right. Strange, but okay. A couple of you guys. Uh, junior high dance is obviously kind of a misnomer, right? Because very few people actually dance, right? You walk in and here's the guys, here's the girls, and then there's like three couples standing in the middle dancing, usually inappropriately, right? So everybody else <laughs> stands on the edge. And I remember those days, but here's the other thing I remember. We would stand there and we'd kind of be afraid and then there'd be one guy that he would just suddenly muster up his courage and he'd say, I'm going for it, right? And he would walk out of our ranks and walk across that lonely floor while everybody watched him. He would ask that girl to dance and she'd go, sure, hopefully, right? And she would come out into the center of the floor and they would dance. And what that did often was it had this sort of galvanizing effect on the rest of us, right? We would go, if he can do it, by golly, I can too, right? And so you would walk across the floor, perhaps, and ask, and half of us would get rejected and go back and stand against the wall. But the other half had a great night, right? The courage of one empowered the courage of the others. All right, that's what happens when we begin to share the gospel. I will never forget, shortly after I graduated college, I was working here as an intern, and uh, the pastor Uh, Our senior pastor actually was our college pastor and he was supervising me and he said, we're going to take a group of students out onto campus and we're going to share the gospel. And I went, all right, that's great. But inside I thought, I've never done that before and I'm going to make a fool of myself and I'm afraid, right? But what was amazing was I went out there with him actually and he'd done this before and I remember the encouraging effect of sitting there with somebody else who was bold enough to share the gospel and did so. Nobody put us in jail, nobody beat us up. Few people looked at us strange. But I thought, I can do this. And although I was afraid going in, after we shared the gospel, I had this incredible sense of being faithful to what God had called me to do. And you know what? Every time I've shared Jesus Christ with others, that's exactly how it is. I'm afraid before. Every time. Every single time. And afterwards, I just have this sense that I was faithful. Even if the person doesn't trust Jesus. Paul says, when you're faithful, it empowers others to be faithful as well, to share the gospel. When you suffer joyfully and willingly for the gospel message, others are willing to as well. So suffering encourages other believers. And then thirdly, suffering transforms our attitudes. Look at verse uh, 15. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. 
Suffering for the gospel transforms our attitudes. And the first way is this, it, it creates in us a selflessness that we can't find, I don't think, in any other activity. Here's Paul sitting in prison. Now, here's what's going on. There are people who are sharing the gospel, they're sharing Jesus, but they're doing so from the wrong motives. They're emboldened to share the gospel, but for some people, the reason they're doing it is because they want to cause Paul distress and trouble in his imprisonment. Now, we don't know exactly what their motives are, but we can take a guess. That seems like there was a rival faction of Christians. Maybe they had slightly different theology. Maybe they were just trying to build up their own name instead of Paul's. And so Paul goes to prison and they say, this is our chance to take over. And so they begin to share the gospel out of rivalry to gather their own little tribe and take away from Paul's. And you know what Paul says about that? Great. Christ is proclaimed. And there's this willingness in Paul, because of his suffering, he is focused on the spread of the gospel and not on how good Paul looks, not on how big Paul's tribe is, not on whether his fraternity on campus or his organization or his Bible study is the biggest, but instead on the fact that the gospel is being preached and proclaimed. There's a narrowing of his focus away from self because he's willing to suffer for the gospel. I'm going to show you guys a picture that I'm going to regret probably showing, but um, this is a uh, trip group I went on in uh, 10th grade. This is a trip we went on to Guatemala to um, go on a mission trip, and yeah, that's me right there. Um, I don't know what is going on with the hat. I think I thought that the hat was cool and the fanny pack at the time, I do want to point out, I'm not the only one wearing a fanny pack. There's this guy over here, and I'm sure there's others up in here somewhere that you can't see. So I think the fanny pack was in at the time, Uh, but this is a trip we went on to Guatemala. Now, we were 10th graders, upper middle class 10th graders from Dallas. We went on this trip to Guatemala, first mission trip really most of us had ever been on. And you know how high schoolers are. There's all kinds of gossip and jealousy and relational drama and all this kind of stuff going on all the time. It never stops. But it was interesting. We went down to Guatemala and uh, the conditions were certainly different there. We didn't have television. We didn't have phones. We couldn't call our friends. There were no cell phones back then. So a call back home cost like $1,000 a minute or something. And so it was ridiculous. We couldn't do any of that. And uh, the, the hardest thing I actually still remember about this trip was uh, there was one shower for all the guys and one shower for all the girls. And we would stand in line and you had five minutes to take a shower and you'd turn on the water. And if you weren't one of the first two or three, it was cold. And it literally came out like, like a trickle, like a drip. And so you would stand under this water and you'd try to kind of get yourself, you know, washed clean and get the dirt off in five minutes. And then you would go outside And the air was so polluted that you immediately were dirty again. And so the whole week, you just, you felt like Pigpen from Snoopy. It's like you had this cloud of dust. Now for 10th graders in middle-class Dallas, that's suffering, even though it seems small. And yet something interesting happened on that trip, and that was that there was a sense of community and selflessness between those students that I really had never experienced before. Some of those folks are still good friends with me, despite how I dressed, right? They still (laughs) keep up. Because when we're willing to endure some degree of hardship for the gospel, it takes us out of ourselves and focuses on, on something eternal. 
So there's this selflessness that you see in Paul's writings that really is stunning. For some of us, it's difficult if you're really engaged in a Christian group or some Christian organization, or maybe you have a particular theology, it's tough when you see others that you don't maybe agree with in every respect, and their little group seems to be growing. That's difficult. And yet Paul says, I rejoice that the gospel is preached. It's difficult as you're trying to share the gospel. Maybe you've got a friend, family member, roommate that that irritates you, does things differently from you different theology from you and and they annoy you and you want to claim your rights and your way of doing things. But what's great is when we focus on this, that Jesus Christ died for our sins and rose again and there's a world that needs him. It really crystallizes our perspective, focuses us away from self and toward the things of Jesus Christ. Not only does the gospel, suffering for the gospel produce selflessness, it also transforms our attitudes by producing joy Look at verses uh, 18 to 20. Paul says, Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. All right, Paul says, I can rejoice because I'm not bound emotionally to whatever my circumstances are. Whether I live, whether I die, I can rejoice because the gospel is being preached because I am being used to do God's will. And he says, either way, whether I live or whether I die, this is a win-win situation for me. And so he rejoices not because of his circumstances, but in spite of them because he knows that God will use them for the purposes of his gospel, if Paul is faithful. I remember watching a movie several years ago and there were these two characters, they were thieves and they were talking about a plan they had to rob a series of convenience stores. And one of them said this, he said, "Uh, we're gonna just keep going until we gather enough money to retire or until we get caught and go to jail. And they said, either way, we're set for life, right? It's the idea, it's a win-win situation. That's how Paul feels. Either I'll get out of jail and I'll have the opportunity to share Jesus or I'll be put to death. And through my death, the gospel will spread and I'll get to be with Jesus. Where is your joy found? Is it found in the circumstances of your life? If it is, you're going to have a hard time being willing to suffer for the gospel. If your joy is found in what others think of you or your prestige, or even your financial security, it will be hard to step out of that and be joyful even when you suffer. But if we take a page from Paul's book, see that Paul looks well beyond the circumstances of this life. And he says there's an eternal benefit to suffering for the gospel that isn't immediately apparent. I have the opportunity to contribute to something that will last forever and ever, to have my life count for something that goes far beyond people's approval or houses or cars or fame or any of that stuff. And it gives him joy. And it does transform him and give him that eternal perspective. Verses 21 through 26. For to me to live is Christ and to die is is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. 
I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. In other words, Paul says, I'm really torn. I don't know if I want to live or die. Again, if I die, I go to be with Jesus. If I live, I've got fruitful labor. He ultimately concludes, I think God is asking me right now to stay because you need me to progress in the faith, to be able to share the gospel, to have joy and confidence in God when I come to you again. But he says, ultimately, I look beyond this life into what God is doing for eternity. And I see a reward that can't be matched by anything in this world. He takes a long-term picture of his life and looks at the things that will last. God's word, the people into whom he invests. He says, being in prison now is just a small inconvenience for the joy of being a part of God's plan. My wife and I have three kids. And one of the things that always stunned me after uh, she would go through pregnancy and then have that child. She actually had three C-sections, which were tough on the body. One of the things that always would stun me after the first two was six or eight months later when she'd say, I think I'd like to have another. And I'd always think, don't you remember you know, what happened when, when you had the first one, right? Nine months of another person absorbing your energy, your resources, eating your food, taking up your space, right? followed by a really painful stay in the hospital, uh, blood and, you know, all kinds of stuff, uh, crying baby, staying up all night, all this kind of stuff. And all of a sudden she goes, I, I want to I have another one. And from a human perspective, from a, a real uh, narrow perspective, you go, who, who would want to do that? Well, why does she want to do that? Because she's not looking at the pain and the suffering and all of those things. She's looking at the baby. That's the end of the journey. In fact, the scripture actually uh, uses that illustration a couple of times to talk about eternity. She forgets the pain. It's, it's amazing. I never forget when something hurts. Somehow, she does. Okay. Paul says, this pain is going to fade away. But if I invest my life in the things of God's kingdom, that's going to last. And I'll rejoice forever with Jesus Christ. I'll hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Because I've devoted my life to what matters. And most people don't do that. Most people devote their lives to things that are going to go into the grave with them. I don't care how famous you are, how successful you are in your career, how many good friends you have who like you. The reality is that what will last forever and ever is the work that you do on God's behalf to share the gospel, to help other people know him and to know him yourself. Will you invest your life in those things? I've said this before, but this really is why we give you opportunities to go overseas and see what God is doing. This is why we give you opportunities to study the word of God so that you can know it and know him and know what he wants from you. I'm absolutely convinced that there is no better use of your time. We don't do the stuff just because we're trying to fill up a week. Because we pray and hope that you'll make a decision now 
to be a faithful follower of Jesus for your life. And even though you may not be prestigious or important in worldly terms, pray that one day we'll stand at the judgment seat of Christ and we'll hear Jesus Christ say, well done, well done, good and faithful servant. You've invested your life in those things that matter. Enjoy your rest. Enjoy worshiping him forever. That's what we want for you. Jamie's going to come back up and lead us as we close. And as we sing this song, the song is going to be It Is Well. It's a great old hymn that focuses us on this, that no matter what's going on in our lives, no matter what our circumstances are, it's well because God holds the world in his hands and he's got a purpose and a plan that goes far beyond the things that we see. And so ask this question as we sing, are you willing to allow your attitude to be transformed to one where you will faithfully and lovingly and graciously present the gospel and invest in the things of God, looking for his return, looking for that day when you'll meet him, even if it requires suffering and difficulty and pain now, will you let God transform your attitude to be a faithful follower of him? We do praise you because... Despite the circumstances that we live in, we know it is well with our souls, with our lives, when we trust you. Father, I pray you would give us that kind of a perspective as we face the challenges of living in a world that does not agree with your truth. And I pray we would walk by faith, trusting that there is a reward greater than anything on this earth. Let us find our joy and our focus and our perseverance in you. Pray if there are any in here this morning who don't know your son, Jesus, that this morning they would believe that he died for our sins and rose again so we can have eternal life. Father, I pray empower us this week for your service. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a wonderful week.